Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When Scripture deconstructs a human proposition by forcing an opposing position, which we have repeatedly described as functional judgment, meaning Scripture has no stake in the argument itself, only in opposing the human being. It is only natural to argue for or against the point in question. Do you agree or disagree? Be careful. It's a trick question. After all these years, do you really think we are for or against anything on this podcast other than the words of Scripture? Scripture judges you and nobody else but you. You may not judge anyone else, and you cannot dedicate the things you build to God because they lead to judgment. You and nobody else but you have only to hear and obey the voice of the Lord crying out to you and nobody else but you from the wilderness of Scripture. Whatever you believe, whatever position you take, and whatever you do is a projection of your ego. It has nothing to do with the biblical God. So when you argue with your neighbor for or against God's functional stance against you in or through scripture, you are engaging in an argument that publicly portrays your embarrassment of the cross. To baptize, in Greek, is to sink a ship. The cancellation of our many human gods through the gospel of Jesus Christ is total. If you are still arguing, your ship is still afloat. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 14 to 17. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 432 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we talked about the way in which Scripture dismantles, tears down, deconstructs, and discredits everything so that the only thing you hear is the voice of the shepherd in the wilderness of Scripture, giving instruction so that you can walk correctly according to its precepts. The precepts of this book, the Gospel of Luke, in which the words of God are set forth 
in consecutive order. And Luke went to great lengths to make it absolutely clear in our minds that the authority expressed in the story through the gift of life, which is the fulfillment of God's commandment in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply, that this authority does not rest in the temple or its cultic priesthood, that in order for this commandment to be fulfilled, God once again had to intervene through his angel so that Elizabeth's womb could be made fruitful. And this is the cause of rejoicing. This is the cause of hope. This is the good news of Luke's gospel, that despite the failure of Jerusalem, which he wants to make clear in your mind, despite the destruction of everything that comes from the work of human hands, despite the failure of the seed of Zacharias, there is still the possibility of life, and there is still a cause for rejoicing. Yeah, the unfruitfulness of the temple. I mean, this is such a beautiful image. It just occurred to me the way that Mark begins in the wilderness, and then you go to the next book that begins in the temple before the wilderness. It's the backstory on the John who appears in the wilderness seemingly out of nowhere. But how do we get this John? We get this John because Zacharias, like we said, does his duty in the temple, no more, no less, and he receives the word. It is the messenger that kicks everything off here. It's not Zacharias that kicks everything off. It's not the prayer that kicks everything off. He just went to light incense, right? This wasn't like a special thing. He did his job as a temple priest, and it just so happens that he and his wife were righteous. Why, we don't know. Text doesn't tell us. And God decided that these righteous people, whom he declared righteous, were going to have a child even though they couldn't have a child. And it was the message that came precisely in the temple. Does this make the temple holy? Yes, it makes the temple holy because the word came there. But if the word comes in the middle of the desert, then the desert is holy. If the word comes in the forest, the forest is holy. The reference is not the temple. The reference is the word. The reference is the messenger who came into the temple. It just happened to be the temple. It just happened to be priests. It happened to be the son of a priest, the son of two priestly parents. And he's the one that this story begins with in Mark, interestingly. But here it's going to begin with John's parents, and then it's going to continue on the line. So we have Matthew in the line that comes up to Jesus through Joseph, but here we have the line of the word that begins in the temple and goes to John and then goes to the wilderness and then goes to the people of Israel we're going to hear more about here in this section. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Another reference, once again, to providence. The fact, scripturally, that it is God who is in control of this birth. The mention of the Holy Spirit has nothing to do 
with inspiration, which is what all of you will assume. When you see the two words, even in English, Holy Spirit, assume it means you have no control over the situation. Treat the two words, Holy Spirit, as a euphemism for chaos from the human being's perspective. Insert the word tornado or hurricane or disaster or the phrase out of control just like the angel undermines the authority of the temple and the temple priesthood the Holy Spirit here is a reminder that the womb is no reference either the Holy Spirit later in the story in the Gospel of John goes wherever it wants and you can't control it even the reference to the child being filled with the spirit while yet in the mother's womb is a reference to something beyond our reach beyond the reach of Zechariah the priest beyond the reach of Elizabeth herself because the only one who has dominion and the only one who knows someone even while they were in their mother's womb is God very clearly in the prophetic writings this is how Isaiah is applied to Paul vis-a-vis God's description of Israel I knew you in your mother's womb you can't know someone in their mother's womb and don't talk about ultrasounds that's not the point (laughs) so the whole thing is about control and dismantling our control dismantling what we build remember It's not just about being deconstructed and dismantled by Scripture. It's about staying deconstructed. Otherwise, as we learned from Matthew, the last deception will be worse than the first. Do not build again the things that God destroys. Don't do it. Luke is fighting here to make sure on the heels of the destruction of the temple that no one hearing this gospel in the Gentile church is fooled by the circumcision party and tries even in their imagination to rebuild the authority of the institution of the temple or the institution of Jerusalem. He's making it clear this is about the authority of God through his instruction, period. You know, Theologians disappoint me. I would have expected if they had been reading Scripture closely, you know, we know how excited they get about the Son of God being born in the virgin womb, the womb of Mary, but no one gets excited about the Holy Ghost being born from the womb of Elizabeth. No one talks about that piece. I won't go there. We'll let the theologians deal with that however they're going to deal with that. I'm going to deal with the text here. But we have John already going to be filled with the Holy Ghost, and I love that image that you laid out, Father, which is that she's got a tornado in her womb, and she's going to give birth to that tornado, and it's going to dismantle the systems that exist, and it's going to, as we know, begin in the desert. That's where it's going to begin this process of dismantling, and everything comes to a head in the beginning when John and Jesus come together, and then it all starts to become dismantled. 
The Holy Ghost begins, the Holy Spirit, the Pnevma Ayos, begins this dismantling process because it's bigger than the temple. It's bigger than any human institution or construction. It's what completely undermines anything human. So this spirit is then brought out by John as he teaches. And then Jesus confirms this teaching, which comes from the Father, and then teaches this teaching. And this is the way that God begins to form his kingdom on earth, as we talked very much about in Matthew. So the pairing, the coupling of this initial call of the herald, John, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, He's also obedient like a Nazarite in not drinking any alcohol, neither wine nor strong drink. As a result, this teaching, which should be in the temple, but, you know, where the Holy Spirit goes, this is where the teaching is going to appear. Jesus teaches this teaching wherever Jesus is going to walk. We talked about that a ton when we were talking about Mark. When this tornado is born, it's the beginning of leveling the land so that then Jesus is ready to teach that which is going to build it up according to Scripture, according to the will of his Father. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Again, Luke is speaking to the Gentile community. And he is explaining that Jerusalem failed. If Jerusalem was so great, and if the temple was such an excellent, wonderful institution, why do the sons of Israel need to be brought back to Yahweh, their Elohim? Why? What went wrong? Why did the Lord have to intervene with Zacharias if everything was hunky-dory? It wasn't. Now, people will come to you with different theological explanations, but those explanations are always soothing and self-justifying, which is a fancy way of saying religious thinking is self-righteous. When Matthew said, do not judge, he meant it. If you hear scripture and you form a thought about anyone but yourself, you're in communion with Satan. If what you take away from any reading of scripture is what is wrong with someone else, then you are reading scripture with blinders on and you're hearing scripture with wax in your ears. The only thing you should hear when you hear scripture is that you are wrong, that you are judged and that you are a sinner. You should not judge anyone else. You should not justify yourself and then turn on anyone else. It's functional. Now, you're going to say to me, am I really the worst person in the world, Father Mark? No. No. We know what human beings are. This isn't about who the worst person is. It's not a competition. It's about functionality. It's about making sure that you don't judge anyone else or imagine that you're better than anyone else, which all of us do. Do not lie. Every single one of us thinks we have something to say to our neighbor about something. And Scripture doesn't allow it. 
Because the Gentile, the implied addressee of this text, the lover of God from the Gentile community, can't but think an ill thought about the sons of Israel. And we're going to see how Luke doesn't let them get away with that. So even this statement about the sons of Israel is a test and a setup. Because how dare you judge the sons of Israel? If you imagine as a Gentile addressee that it's not a condemnation of you, you're already a religious thinker. And the next thing you're going to do is put together a position paper for the Supreme Court on what the law of the land should be. You haven't figured it out. This isn't about the law of the land. This is about the voice of the shepherd in the wilderness, which is calling you to account, nobody else. Have you ever seen a sheep, when it hears the call of the shepherd, organize a campaign to gather other sheep up? It's a big joke, Rich. Yeah, this isn't a prophecy for the Christian Zionist who says, ooh, eventually there's going to be a day when the children of Israel, when the Jews are going to believe in Jesus. You know, th- That's not what this is about. This is about the long discourse in Hosea 1 and 2 talking about the children who were born of a harlotous land and thought that if they chose the right God, they could get the right stuff. And this Holy Spirit is here to tear down the religious and military and political institutions that the people believed were going to save them in Hosea. And if in Hosea they didn't think that they could have their own good institutions, they would ask Assyria or Egypt to help them out. But having those institutions in place is what they really wanted. But the Holy Spirit and the tornado and Jesus and his teaching and the crucifixion undermine completely every institution. You can't have a thing and say it's Jesus's or say it belongs to God or the kingdom of God. It's not yours to decide. It's not yours to dedicate to God, therefore it makes it good. No, the word comes first. But guess what? When the word comes the Holy Spirit has already flattened everything. Then the word comes. But the reason why he's going to bring the children of Israel back to the Lord their God is because he's going to level every other institution they thought they could control that they thought could be or function as their God. This is what the Holy Spirit does. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And you already made reference, Richard, to this text from Malachi, from the Minor Prophets. And I think it's important to call out the full verse. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. The land has been smitten with a curse. The temple has been destroyed. And this cannot be lost in the historical setting of the Gospel of Luke. Anybody hearing this knows that the whole thing has been a complete failure. 
the Romans have destroyed the temple, the land has been smitten. And if you're hearing it scripturally and looking with scriptural eyes, it's not the Romans who destroyed the temple. It's the Lord. That's functionality. You cannot say, oh, those Romans are monsters, even though they were. Okay, let me speak plainly. Let me speak as a fool in human terms, as Paul says in the New Testament. Obviously, the Romans were monsters, but you can't say that as an addressee of the prophetic text. You have to submit to the words of God that it is God who destroyed the temple. That's the rub. That's the difficulty of Jeremiah. That's why it's called a Jeremiad. And if you blame the Romans, you're attacking Jeremiah. That is what we've been trying to teach on this podcast. So it's painful on the one hand to hear the reference to Malachi. On the other hand, it's hopeful because we're now hearing this post-destruction, which means Luke is saying, look, God has already smacked you. So now, the tornado is coming to whip up some instruction, and this time maybe you'll listen. And by the way, if you are with the poor in the open space under the heavens, listening to the voice of the shepherd at the end of Matthew, (laughs) tornado is no problem, because there are no buildings to be torn down. But it's this undoing of disobedience and this changing of the attitude. And the Greek word here is phronesis, the changing of your mind. He's changing your attitude. He's reorienting your mind away from the temple and towards the instruction, the dabarim so that you can be prepared for the coming of Yahweh. And this is exactly what we find in the Minor Prophets in Hosea. Everything has to be destroyed. The land has to become a dry land. And it's precisely at this dry land of the wife that God goes and meets the people. And Hosea is to take that woman as a wife and to say that no more king or prince or teraphim or ephod or sacrifice or anything. And that's where he's going to meet them. And that's where he's going to speak to them. And that's where he's going to bring them to himself. All that institution, even the crops of the land have to be gone before he's going to begin. And guess what? We see the same thing in Joel. In Joel, before anything starts, the locusts come, and they destroy everything, and they eat all the crops, and the people are crying out because there's not even enough crops to make a sacrifice. And so God says it's time to fast. Once that Holy Spirit has now flattened everything, that's the only time that the children of Israel, and then later on, hopefully, the Gentiles, will be able to hear this word of the Lord. But they have to have their heart broken. They have to have their faith in themselves broken. They have to have their trust in human institutions that they build broken before he can fill up that broken cistern 
with the water of his word. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.